A listener's note before we begin. The following episode contains adult themes and content of a violent nature. It may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. At 2 a.m. on Sunday, April 19th, the tiny seaside community of Portapique, Nova Scotia was unrecognizable. Fires raged and 13 people were dead. Survivors stayed put in their homes. As far as we know, most people were not escorted to safety while police looked for the gunmen. Instead, police said they told residents to shelter in place, just like they'd been doing for weeks because of COVID-19 and the state of emergency. Only now, it was like the isolation of the pandemic had been weaponized. Some have told us they slept in shifts, keeping watch as police cars drove by, not knowing what had happened or who was involved or whether the gunman had been found. Some people who live nearby said they didn't sleep at all. You know, we, we, we worried all night, not knowing what was going on uh, with the police presence and the fires with no fire trucks. Another man who watched the fires burn from his backyard that night told Global News that when he later learned the name of the gunman, it was a name he knew. My sister knew him because he's a dentist and she just had new teeth made by him and she thought he was salt of the earth. See, that's what made his killing spree so shocking to some. People who knew the side of Gabriel Wortman that could be charming, even kind. He could turn it on and off, but he wasn't able to hide from everyone. I told the people in Portapic what he was doing, like the first time that he had beaten on her. And they said, oh no, he's such a nice guy. Like everybody said, no, no, he doesn't do anything like that. Well, he had them convinced. Brenda Forbes saw his violence against his common law partner, Lisa Banfield. In previous episodes, you've known her as Beth. Brenda tried to help, and Wartman made sure she suffered for it. She said she was terrorized by him. She used to live just down the street from him seven years ago at the house that later belonged to John Zoll and Joanne Thomas. Because before Portapique became their retirement dream, it was Brenda's, before she moved to get away from Gabriel Wartman. I'm your host, Sarah Ritchie, and this is 13 Hours Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre, Episode 5, Injustice Collector. In our last episode, we told you that the gunman was a collector, in the literal sense. He collected guns, motorcycles, cars, police memorabilia. He was also a collector of another kind. In those findings, the gunman was described is what is called an injustice collector. One who held on to conflict or differences with others, turning them inward until they boiled over in rage. Some recipients of his wrath of violence were targeted for perceived injustices of the past. Others were reactive targets of his rage, and some were just random targets. RCMP Superintendent Darren Campbell said that was one of the early findings of a psychological autopsy police are doing of the gunman. Experts are analyzing his personality, his past behavior, and how he related to other people to try to understand why he did what he did. As we wait for that report to be released, and as we try to understand what happened, we've also been trying to find out if there were other warning signs. Because... 
surely this kind of thing doesn't come out of nowhere. And we know hindsight is twenty-twenty, as they say. We know people close to him have told police since the shootings that the gunman was prone to violence, that he was manipulative, smart, a psychopath. So in this episode, we're going to take some time to explore the gunman's pattern of violence. Because as retired FBI profiler James R. Fitzgerald explained in the last episode, the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. On June 4th, Superintendent Campbell offered Nova Scotians a simple two-word phrase to partially explain the man behind the terror, injustice collector. But what does it mean? We talked to experts about that. Here's what they told us. Injustice collectors tend to be middle-aged men, people who make a database in their minds of anyone who's crossed them and then hold on to those grievances. They let the rage stew for a period of time The sense that they had been wronged, it multiplies, mutates, and then it spreads. That's how Tracy Viancourt described it. She's the Canada Research Chair in School-Based Mental Health and Violence Prevention at the University of Ottawa. She said injustice collectors obsess over trigger points. They ruminate over it with a lot of uh, emotion. And because when they're thinking about these injustices, they're angry, it solidifies and consolidates the memory. And once that happens, then your default way of thinking about the world tends to be hostile. And we call that a hostile attribution bias. So people who collect these injustices think people are against them, the world's against them, you know, uh, people aren't kind, people have done them wrong. And then um, it becomes almost a self-fulfilling prophecy because now their worldview is so skewed that they see malintent when it doesn't exist. Sometimes this starts in childhood if a person isn't given the right tools to decide whether something is dangerous or harmless. And if a parent is hostile and holds a hostile attribution bias, they tend to then um, influence their children's thinking in a direction that's negative. So it really is a data bank, right? It's a data bank of people that have done you wrong and you rehearse it. And rehearsing it is is terrible because the brain is a use it or lose it organ. And so the more times you use a neural pathway that's negative, um, that's that's how your brain's gonna now become efficient. And your first uh, response then is gonna be hostility. As an example, imagine someone bumping into you at the grocery store. There are two basic ways you can process that in the moment. You can assume the person who hit you wasn't paying attention, or you can assume they did it on purpose. Somebody like Wartman thinks they did it on purpose, and they remember it, and they rehearse it over and over again about how that person didn't show him the respect that he deserves, and how dare they. And then that then leads to that mechanism of moral disengagement, where I can can treat them poorly, I can murder them even because of all the crummy things they've done to me. They've done, been doing me wrong for so many years, so they deserve what they get. Injustice collectors tend not to get along well with others, especially their neighbors. They have a history of conflict. And that's something we've learned was a pattern in Wartman's life. The RCMP said so in a press conference on April 28th. There was certainly a, a fairly uh, sizable amount of information that there were individuals who had had a number of disputes uh, with the gunman over uh, a certain period of time. 
and it appears to be a lengthy period of time. Um, that included uh, everything from associates uh, to business partners uh, to family members. As the country woke up to the horror unfolding in Nova Scotia on the morning of Sunday, April 19th, Brenda Forbes was not surprised to hear the name of the man responsible. And when she learned he'd been killed by police, she had mixed emotions. And I went, good, that SOB is gone. He's gone. But it's still... I thought to myself, nobody listened to me. Everybody protected him. And there were people there that knew what he was like and nothing was done. And now I have people calling me here get or getting in touch with me by email or whatever and apologizing to me, saying we should have believed what you were saying. In 2002, Brenda and her husband George moved to Nova Scotia from Alberta to be closer to George's parents. They settled into their new home at 293 Portapic Beach Road. Brenda described the neighborhood as friendly, nice and quiet, but the peace didn't last long. At around the same time, Gabriel Wartman moved into the neighborhood, just a short walk down the road from Brenda. When we first met him, he seemed like he was okay. Um, But the first thing he did, which kind of threw both of us off, he showed us a whole bunch of weapons that he had, um, ranging from a rifle to pistols. And kind of that kind of set off a couple of alarm bells right there. Brenda said over the years, she saw Wartman fire guns across the bay. She assumed he had a license to use them. He didn't. Brenda and George were members of the Canadian Armed Forces, and they would sometimes wear military gear around their property. When Wartman saw that, Brenda said he approached them with an odd question. And he actually asked us if we could get him any type of weapons or if we could get him live rounds. And both me and my husband looked at each other and went, no, Gabriel, that's illegal. You cannot, you cannot do that. You can't, it's against the law. Big warning bells there. And Brenda told us that over time, she realized Wartman was abusing Lisa. Like we had met his girlfriend. She had come to a couple of our house warming parties and then down the street we'd have a little party with the neighbors like we all kind of got along and if she was having a good time there um he would notice it and didn't like it and he would drag her away from us and i thought okay this is this is just off it's just not right brenda said there was a pattern at every social gathering if lisa was having fun he would come and haul her away it happened again and again One day in particular stands out to her. Brenda said her husband was at work and she had just come home when Lisa showed up hysterical. She come over crying, saying that Gabriel was beating her up and wouldn't let her leave. He had her car blocked off in the driveway with his truck. She couldn't get out. So I told her, I said, you got to get help. There's lots of places here in Nova Scotia that will help women and they will protect you. And she said, no, he'll find me. She was just too afraid. And she went back home and I went, oh, this, it's just crazy. 
After that day, Brenda said Wortman wouldn't allow the two women to speak. If Brenda was having coffee at a neighbor's house and Lisa showed up, Lisa would leave so they wouldn't be seen together in the same room. Brenda is one of several people who have told us they witnessed violence by Wortman toward his partner and toward other family members. There were times he was even violent toward complete strangers. One of the first things police revealed about Wortman after the shootings was that he didn't have a criminal record and that he was not well known to them. But that's not entirely true. He did have a criminal history. Before Brenda moved to Portapic, there was a major incident, an extremely violent one involving a teenager. My colleague, Global News investigative reporter Andrew Russell, looked into Wortman right after the rampage happened. So... One of the things we immediately do in these kinds of, you know, horrible situations when there's a, uh, you know, mass shooting or an act of violence is we want to find out more about who the person uh, police are saying is responsible. And when we get the name, one of the first things we do is we go to courthouse. We run the name, preferably with the date of birth um, or any other details, and we try to find out if they have any kind of uh, criminal records. So we're looking for things like past arrests, uh, you know, any kind of uh, lawsuits, civil suits. Uh, we're pretty much looking for anything to try to find out more about who this person was and try to give uh, audience, our readers, um, and the people of Nova Scotia context about, you know, who this person uh, allegedly was. That's how Andrew found out about the assault and tracked down the victim. As soon as he uh, picked up the phone, I explained who I was, and he's like, wow, you're the first person to find me. He was a teenager at the time of the attack. He wants to maintain some privacy, so we're not going to use his full name. We're calling him Matthew. He told Andrew what happened to him in the fall of 2001 in Dartmouth. He was 15 at the time, you know, waiting to catch a bus. Uh, I guess he was standing a little bit back from the sidewalk, and he happened to be standing uh, in front of 193 Portland Street which is the same address as Gabriel Wartman's uh, Atlantic Denture Clinic. And what he remembers is all of a sudden he's standing there and this guy who he believed to be intoxicated at the, uh, intoxicated at the time came running out of the building and just sort of just in a rage started screaming at him that he was on his property and then just started hitting him. And then a second person came out um, and allegedly hit him with a crowbar. He remembers just the look in this guy's eye of just absolute rage and fury. And then catching, you know, just fists in the face and being stomped on. And he just remembers how angry this person was. He remembers later waking up in hospital and speaking to the police. And, uh, you know, it was one of those things where he was just had no idea why he was targeted. It was a chapter of life that, you know, he wanted to move on from. And he also, I mean, he had like staples uh, in his head. You know, he had uh, some other scrapes, uh, bruises. I mean, he was a 15-year-old kid. This is a horrible, brutal act by two older guys in their mid-30s. So, I mean, he just had no idea why it happened. And one of the things he was really frustrated by, I remember, was just how... Gabriel Wartman was let off with no jail time. Wartman was 33 years old at the time, and he was arrested and charged with assault. 
He admitted to the assault and pleaded guilty in January 2002. He was given a conditional discharge and nine months probation, during which he was not allowed to own any weapons. He was also ordered to pay a fine of $50. The conditional discharge means that Wartman didn't have a criminal record. And while Matthew had said there were two men involved, the court documents don't mention a second attacker. Andrew talked to Matthew about how he felt after learning that Wartman was responsible for the shooting spree in April. But he does remember wishing that police, authorities, lawyers, a judge, somebody had taken this more seriously, especially with the weapons ban. He really wished that the weapons ban had been much, much longer because he just remembers the, you know, really vividly just the the viciousness of the attack and why a person, you know, who could do this to a 15-year-old kid would ever be allowed to own weapons was something that just he always thought about and just wished that somebody had stepped in earlier. That assault was not the only thing we were able to learn about the gunmen from the courts. As Andrew mentioned, he also looked for civil cases or lawsuits, anything to shed some light on the gunmen's past. And that's how we learned about Stephen Zink. Stephen ran an auto shop near Wartman's Denture Clinic, and he told one of my colleagues at Global News that they were introduced through a friend. Back in 2004, Stephen was having a hard time. Things weren't going well at his shop, and he was on the brink of losing his family home in the Halifax area. His mortgage was up for renewal, but his income didn't satisfy the bank's requirements. He was able to get a loan from a man he considered to be a friend. Stephen said Wartman agreed to hold the $38,000 mortgage so Stephen could keep living in the house, and he agreed to pay all of that back, plus $10,000. But it wasn't long after the two struck a deal that Stephen said he lost everything. Documents show the house was in foreclosure when Wartman bought it, He became the official owner in June 2004. Then the city sent Wartman a letter telling him to clean up the property. He said Stephen was stopping him from doing repairs and maintenance and sought an eviction order. The court documents show that Wartman won. Stephen was evicted from the home his father built. The documents say that Stephen insisted he was still the owner of the house and he wanted to fight Wartman in Supreme Court, but he couldn't afford the fees. And then, Stephen said, Wartman emptied out the house, put everything into dumpsters, and sold it. In an April 2020 article, Stephen told Global News that Wartman was, and I quote, smiling while doing all that. He thought it was funny, end quote. He said that according to the deal they made, if he had missed three payments, the house became Wartman's. But Stephen said he never missed a payment. He said Wartman knew what he was doing. Quote, it's hard to explain. I was down and out, and he stepped right in. End quote. Court records show that there was another property dispute, and this time with a man Wartman had known his entire life, a close family member. Like with Stephen, it started with a loan, and it ended with a tattered relationship. Yeah, but he's very odd. That's Glenn Wartman, the gunman's uncle. Glenn and Paul Wartman, the gunman's father, are two of five brothers who grew up in Moncton, New Brunswick. Glenn said he and his nephew were quite close, especially when Wartman was young. We all drank beer and played cards. 
the five boys, and uh, he collected all our beer bottles. He always liked money. Before we explain what happened between Gabriel and his uncle, Glenn Wortman, you should know that Glenn told us he's living with dementia. He lives in a care home in Moncton now, and we're not entirely clear how advanced his memory loss is. But we've spoken with him a number of times, and his stories and memories are consistent from one interview to the next. He remembers who we are when we call, and he remembers our previous conversations. We've also sought to verify everything he told us for this episode through other sources. We've spoken to people close to Glenn who have told us they feel he's reliable. He became really ill several years ago. Glenn and others have told us he struggles to remember that period of time in particular. And we'll get into that later in the episode. Glenn's dispute with his nephew began in 2010 when he decided to move. He'd been living in Edmonton, Alberta for 33 years, but he felt a pull to come back east. Well, I retired and uh, every minute of time it goes back eventually. Glenn put his townhouse up for sale, and his nephew helped him buy a new house in Portapique. He even helped with the move. He said, I'll come and pack you up and take you home to uh, the Maritimes. So I said, okay. It was a big red house at 135 Orchard Beach Drive, right across the street from the property where Wartman later built his warehouse. Glenn said his nephew lent him $165,000 in bridge financing while he waited for his place in Edmonton to sell. Not a small sum to float as a favor. When the townhouse sold the next year, Glenn repaid him in full. But Wartman refused to take his name off the property in Portapique. Well, he always wanted my house. He wanted me to will the house to him. I don't know why he didn't buy the house in the first place, because he really liked it. According to an affidavit Glenn filed in court, Wortman gave a number of reasons for keeping his name on the house. He said he was kind of busy and would get around to it, and that he had to consult a lawyer. But mainly, he said, his uncle owed him money. Glenn said he wanted $70,000. He doesn't know where that sum came from, but he said Wortman wouldn't back down. But his name is still on the lease. He said he wasn't going to release his name unless he got the $70,000. I didn't owe him a cent. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. There was about three lawyers involved. And I told them I'm not giving them 70 cents. Let them $70,000. That fight went on for five years. And Glenn said this was not the only fight going on within the family. In 2010, just before Glenn moved to Portapique, another major family rift was brewing. Gabriel Wortman was 41 years old when his parents told him he was not an only child. He had a younger brother. In 1970, when Gabriel Wortman was around two years old, his parents, Paul and Evelyn, gave up their second child for adoption. His name is Jeff Samuelson, and he lives in Massachusetts. 
An article from April 2010 in his hometown newspaper, The Spencer New Leader, explains how he tracked down his biological parents after years of searching. The article says when Evelyn found out she was pregnant with Jeff, she and Paul decided they couldn't financially support a second child. They gave him up for adoption in Massachusetts, where they were living at the time. Jeff first tried to find his biological parents in the 90s, but he hit a dead end. Around the same time as Jeff was looking for Paul and Evelyn, it turns out they were looking for him. They went back to Massachusetts in 1994, but didn't have any luck. In the fall of 2009, Evelyn was determined to try again. This time, they were successful. The adoption agency put the three in touch. They exchanged letters, talked on the phone, until they decided to meet on Jeff's birthday in March of 2010. This was a reunion 40 years in the making, and Jeff wanted it to be perfect. The article says Jeff had a friend videotape the reunion so he could hold on to the memory of the moment his biological parents first entered his home and his life. It was a slow introduction as the friend walked Paul and Evelyn through Jeff's house. Jeff's a master carpenter, so he proudly set up photographs of some of his work for his parents to see and photos of his family. But he covered up his own face in those photos. That way, Paul and Evelyn could see him for the first time in person. Then he came in and the three finally met with a warm embrace. Jeff said it felt like skydiving for the first time. The article ends by saying that Jeff's, quote, full-blooded older brother was not present for the reunion. Family members said they agreed it would be best if the two met on a separate occasion, end quote. The article said Jeff and his wife were planning a trip to see the Wartmans soon, possibly on Paul Wartman's birthday a few months later. And they did. We tried to reach Jeff to talk about this, but he hasn't agreed to an interview. Glenn said the news that he had a brother came as a massive shock to Gabriel Wartman and to him. And it all came to a head at a birthday party Gabriel Wartman hosted for his dad in June of 2010 in Portapic. That's when he met his brother for the first time. But it wasn't the reunion everyone had in mind. Well, I kept saying to um, Jeff, give Gabriel some time. He'll come around a bit standoffish, but he'll warm up to you. He's happy to have a brother. Well, I was lying. I was. I thought he would. He never did. He didn't want to know him. Didn't want anything to do with him. In a Globe and Mail article published after the shootings, people who were at that birthday party said it came to an abrupt end when a fight started between Wartman and his father, and it seemed like property was at the heart of that fight too. After the shootings, police interviewed another of Wartman's uncles one of the retired RCMP officers. His name is redacted from the court documents. But according to those documents, that uncle told police that Wartman was paranoid and that he put his properties in his parents' names because he was worried about the Canada Revenue Agency coming for him. Property records show that Gabriel, Paul, and Evelyn Wartman were all listed on a mortgage for the Portapit Cottage in 2002. The uncle told police Paul Wartman refused to take his name off the property, and that is what caused the argument at the party in June 2010. The property records also show 
That was the year Paul and Evelyn Wartman signed what's called a quit-claim deed for the cottage. They took their names off the property for $1. The original date on those property records is March 2010, the same month of Paul and Evelyn's reunion with Jeff, but they didn't sign them until September. And Glenn and another person close to the family told us that's what really caused the fight over the cottage, was finding out about Jeff so late in his life. They said that surprise permanently damaged the relationship between Wartman and his parents. From what we can tell, there was a pattern of violence between Wartman and his father. Halifax Regional Police say they investigated Wartman for threatening to kill his parents on June 2, 2010. A spokesperson said there wasn't enough evidence to lay charges or get search warrants in that case. I don't know for sure if that complaint was related to the birthday party or if someone reported separate threats at around the same time. Paul's birthday is later in the month. And Glenn told us that he once got a disturbing phone call from his nephew. He phoned me and said, Glenn, I'm going up to to Moncton and I'm going to kill Paul. He always called Paul, Paul, not Dad. I said, don't do that, Gabriel. I said, he's not worth it. I said, you'll end up going to prison and he's not worth it. Glenn said he talked his nephew out of it, but he didn't say whether he reported the call to police. Multiple sources have said Wartman and his father Paul had a history of violence. In fact, one family friend, whose name we've agreed not to use, told us that they immediately called the RCMP on the morning of April 19th when they learned Wartman was a suspect in the ongoing shooting. They wanted to warn police that Paul and Evelyn were likely in danger. And there was another disturbing incident some years ago. In court documents, police say that Lisa Banfield told them Wartman physically assaulted his father when they were all in Cuba, although it's not clear what year that happened. Lisa said Wartman was, quote, smashing Paul's head on the pool and there was blood everywhere, end quote. Glenn told us he isn't sure exactly what started that fight, but he thinks Wartman got drunk and lost his temper. So he hit him, and he hit him, and he hit him, and he hit him. He built the living shit out of him. He was a drinking. Three beers and he left the planet. He was horrible. Glenn said Wartman would stop drinking for months at a time to try to get a handle on it, but then he would relapse. We know Wartman was capable of violence and that he was an injustice collector. But remember, he collected weapons too. And that was well known to family, friends, even neighbors. Glenn remembers Wartman showing them off at a birthday party. And um, he took all the, the men into his garage and showed him his collection of guns. I said, Gabriel, are you out of your mind? You're always showing your guns to people. People talk, Gabriel. Yeah. You're going to let the cops know that you've got those guns and they're illegal. You got them from the states illegally. Everybody knew he had those guns, you know. Nobody reported them. To be clear, Glenn said he never reported the guns either. But saying nobody reported him, that's actually not true. Brenda Forbes, the neighbor we introduced you to at the beginning of this episode, said she tried to report Wartman years before the rampage in April. Brenda and Glenn know each other. 
They lived in the same small neighborhood in port for several years, and they became friends. And in 2013, Glenn told Brenda something that rattled her enough to go to the police. I was at work at the cadet camp, and um, I was talking to Gabriel's uncle, Glenn Workman, and he said that there was him and two of the other guys from port on Gabriel's property that was in the back area, and Gabriel had Lisa on the ground, and he was strangling her, beating on her. Glenn was just too afraid to do anything, but one of the other guys stepped up and tried to interfere, and Lisa cried out, don't stop, you're going to just make it worse. Glenn said he still remembers that night. He was straddling her, laying on her back on top of her and choking her. So I said, get your goddamn hands off her throat. He got up and I saw my God, he's a big, big man, big fist. He closed his fist and came at me. I thought, oh my God, he's gonna knock me into next week. Christ. And Lisa jumped up, ran to the house, got her took off like a bat out of hell. I thought he was going to follow her, but he didn't. And he didn't hit me either. Lisa phoned me. She was in Truro. And she said, I don't know whether to stay here in a motel or go home to uh, Dartmouth. I said, whatever you do, don't let him catch up to you because he's really out of his mind now. She said, don't worry, Glenn. That's the last time I ever heard from her. Glenn said Lisa really loved Wartman but he was jealous and controlling. I couldn't figure out why she stayed with him. He was a nice guy when he wasn't drinking, but he could turn like like an idiot. He said the out-of-control drinking made Wartman volatile and violent, and it seemed to be getting worse over time. After Glenn told Brenda what he saw, she called the RCMP. She said two officers met her at work and asked if any of the men who saw what happened would be willing to give them a statement. So I called Glenn and I said, Glenn, would you be able or willing to talk to the RCMP about what you witnessed, like Gabriel beating uh, Lisa and choking her and uh, with all the uh, illegal weapons that he has? And he said, no way. He'll kill me if I say anything. So I said, Glenn, don't worry about it. Don't say anything. I hung up. Then I talked with the RCMP there, and they said that at that time, because Lisa wasn't willing to talk about what she had been through, there's no way she would have come up and said anything, and that they didn't have actual proof that he had any illegal weapons or that, that they would just monitor him. And that was the end of that. But it wasn't the end of things for Brenda. When Wartman learned that Brenda tried to get involved to stop his violence, she said he came after her. It started after she told Glenn about something she saw at his cottage. And I said, you know something? Gabriel's, when Lisa's not here, when she's working downtown in Halifax or wherever it is there, Gabriel's bringing other women up to the cabin. And it's not the same woman all the time. It's different women all the time. Well, 
<laughs> Glenn had a little bit too much to drink and he went back and he told Gabriel and Lisa. Gabriel grabbed, hauled her over to my place, banged on the door. My husband answered the door. I was upstairs because I had a little bit of the flu. He come in, started screaming at George, what the hell is your wife doing saying that I'm screwing around on Lisa? And um, I came downstairs and he says, what is this? You're saying that I'm screwing around with different women and stuff. And I said, Gabriel, if the shoe fits, wear it. I said, I've seen women going in and out of there all the time with you. Like, sorry, it's true. And right after that, she was definitely not allowed to come near me. And he started stalking me. He would, like my husband had to go to Africa on a, on tour. He was military as well. Well, he was gone. Ugh. Gabriel would drive up to my house. He knew what time I finished work. He would drive up to my house, park outside, stare at the house for a good half hour and then leave. And he did that for a few days. And I went, I got to do something. So what I did was instead of parking my car at my house, I would park at the end of the road. Um, like we're at the very beginning of Portipic Beach Road. There was a a place on the right-hand side that was vacant. So I pull my car in there and park and then go through the woods to get to my place so he wouldn't know that I was at home. But that didn't stop him. Brenda said sometimes she'd even watch from a distance. And it didn't matter if she and her husband were home. Wartman would still be there, watching. And that became unbearable. I just said, this is it. I'm gone. I'm My husband come home. I told him what was going on. George saw him do it once. Um, and then... I said, "That's we got to go. We're, we're moving out of here. That's it. The guy's crazy. He's a psychopath. Brenda didn't call the RCMP again after that. She and George just wanted to get away as soon as they could. Both me and my husband are military. And what is grained into us is the going gets tough, the tough get going. That or suck it up, princess. Just that was our my mindset. Just suck it up and get out of here. They moved to Halifax in 2014. And then five years later, they moved back to Alberta. They put more than 4,500 kilometers between them and the bad memories that poisoned port pick for them. Meanwhile, things continued to break down in the Wartman family. Around 2013 or 2014, Glenn's health took a turn. As we mentioned earlier, he became very sick and was struggling to live on his own. His brother, Neil Wartman, became his power of attorney and put his house up for sale. Glenn moved to a care home in Moncton, where he still lives. But remember, Gabriel Wartman loaned Glenn money to buy the house, and over the years, he had refused to take his name off the deed. In September 2014, lawyers got involved. They agreed the sale would go through and the money would be held in trust by a law firm until the case could be settled. The house sold, the money was put in trust. Glenn told the court in June 2015 that he was the owner of the house and that he didn't owe his nephew anything. And in July, a judge agreed with him. But Glenn said he could never figure out why this dispute happened in the first place. He and Wartman never spoke again. 
They actually asked somebody how I was doing. I was surprised. They thought he hated my guts. Why else would he try to get 70,000 bucks out of me? You know, I wasn't wealthy. Gave my life to screw people and screw businesses. He loved to make money. Even if it meant losing family members. Keep me when I was down. I was so sick and he wanted money out of me. The court documents say that Wortman's partner told police that he cut off his other family, his parents and uncles, after things broke down with Glenn. The RCMP said at a press briefing on June 4th that he was estranged from the two uncles who were retired Mounties. According to court documents, the uncle who was interviewed by police after the shootings said that Wortman refused to see his brother Jeff again because he reminded him too much of their father, Paul. When the shootings happened, court documents say that uncle told police he wasn't surprised and knew Wortman was capable of killing someone, maybe his parents, but he never thought he would go on a rampage. We tried to reach Paul and Evelyn Wortman for comment with a registered letter in the mail. We also had our colleagues in Moncton leave a copy of that letter at the Wortman home. A woman in the driveway told them she wouldn't accept the letter and to just go away. The letter was left on the driveway, and we have not received a response. After the shootings, journalists began uncovering some of the red flags in Wortman's past, like the assault in 2001, his property disputes, and the police complaint Brenda said she made in 2013. In May of this year, she told Global News that she reported Wortman's violence and his guns. But an RCMP spokesperson told us they had no record of any complaint from Brenda. When one of my colleagues asked an RCMP officer about that, they said there were only a few possible reasons for that disconnect. Either Brenda didn't make a complaint, or the officers who responded didn't log her complaint, or they found no criminality and the complaint was purged from the RCMP's records management system after a couple of years. That incensed Brenda. She called Glenn to get him to corroborate her story. We joked about a couple little things, and then I said, Glenn, do you remember um, when I was working at DeBert there at the cadet camp, and um, you told me you told me all, all that happened in the back there with Lisa and the other, the, the other two guys that were watching with you were getting beaten and um, like all the illegal weapons and stuff. I said, you remember talking about, oh, oh yeah, um, I remember that. And I said, and you didn't want to talk to the RCMP, why? And he said, well, yeah, he would have killed me. And then he said, I knew that if I stayed there, he would have killed me. When Glenn talked to my producer, Alex Kress, about all of this, he expressed regret about not making that call. I should have called the cops then. I should have told him about the cops about his guns. And can I ask why you never did? I was quite afraid of him. Yeah. He was a news cannon, you know. But does it surprise you that he hurt so many innocent people? No. No. He would have killed me too, you know. Glenn's big red house on Orchard Beach Drive in Portapique sold in 2015 to Lisa McCulley. She was the teacher and mother of two you met in episode one one of the first people Wartman killed on April 18th. 
and Glenn said he can't help but think Wortman's lingering anger over their dispute years ago was a factor. He wanted that house. He killed that woman because he didn't think she paid enough for my house. It wasn't her fault. Brenda, too, is haunted by this fresh horror. She's talked a lot about what happened to her this year, but it's taken a toll. She lives with work-related PTSD. She has her husband and her service dog, a golden retriever, and she chats with a support group often. But dredging up what she calls a nightmare has been especially difficult because it's a reminder of what could have been. 293 Portapique Beach Road was supposed to be Brenda and George's forever home. They planned to be there for 30 years. But they couldn't stay that close to Wartman, to his violence, his erratic behavior, his illegal guns. In 2017, John Zoll and Joanne Thomas moved in to make it their dream home. And then the man Brenda was terrified of burned it to the ground. John, Joanne, and Lisa were all among Wartman's first victims. It's worth repeating that we don't know why the gunman did what he did on April 18th and 19th. We don't know for sure what injustices he had collected over the years and how that affected his actions that weekend. Only he knew that. But we know that revenge was one of his motivators and that sometimes it didn't take much to push him over the edge. At the end of the last episode, we told you about the new charges laid in this case. And we want to talk about that a little more in light of what you've just heard in this episode. Wartman's partner, Lisa Banfield, is one of three people charged with providing him some of the ammunition he used in the killing spree. The allegations have not been proven in court, and all three people are innocent until proven guilty. We've tried to reach Lisa to talk to her for this podcast. A lawyer who represents her told us she will not be commenting. But the fact that RCMP have laid this relatively minor charge in light of the horrific crimes perpetrated by Wartman has been a flashpoint of controversy. Experts have suggested it could have a chilling effect on victims and survivors of intimate partner violence. The RCMP announced the charges on December 4th, and they did so without explaining why the charges were laid and without answering questions. This lack of context deeply concerns feminist advocates Linda McDonald and Jean Sarson. They've spent almost three decades working with women in Nova Scotia trying to escape abusive and dangerous situations involving violent men. Linda questions why the prosecutors and the police are pursuing these charges at all. Was she really, you know, an independent thinking woman in this relationship? Could she have been coerced into providing him with the ammunition? Did they take that factor into account when they charged her? Is it in the best public interest for uh, society for us to think that police are going to arrest women who are harmed in a relationship in the course of activities? These are all questions that we have to answer. We know from court documents and witness accounts that Wartman had guns in the homes he shared with Lisa. Police say in court documents that multiple witnesses told them Wartman was abusive and controlling toward her. We know he was her employer. He owned their homes and their vehicles were registered in his name. When you talk about he, what he owned, he could have indeed owned her. She could have been an object that he owned. That's the way he might have seen it. 
But we know of other women who were owned by their parents and who went to work and then came home at night and were tortured in the evening and tortured at night. And they appeared like independent individuals. You know, they were college educated, many things, but they were still owned by their perpetrators. Jean Sarson echoed this. She said she worries that the charges invite public speculation about Lisa's involvement in the killings and minimize her experience of being abused. She's being discredited that maybe the violence she suffered is not as bad as it was, and yet they have evidence that she was strangled. She was on the ground and he was strangling her. Brenda Forbes gave that evidence to the police. So it's it's not like she is lying or people are lying about what they saw. The police had that credit. But yet it seems to me that Lisa all of a sudden has become an enemy along with uh, the mass uh, killer. And that, that raises questions about justice, whether justice um, can be delivered or whether she's taking a blunt of so-called guilt unfairly. We're not against the RCMP. We're for justice and we're for bringing the feminist analysis into the discussion. And this is an obvious example of why it's needed. Because without a feminist analysis, Lisa is seen in a very different light. Police have said Lisa and the other two people charged had no prior knowledge of the gunman's actions on April 18th and 19th. In light of the charges, there are people raising questions about what Lisa knew. Based on the facts we do know about the case at this point, Police have said Lisa was a victim. They have said Wartman acted alone that weekend. They have not charged her or anyone else with helping him except for helping him obtain the ammunition, which is illegal. They have not laid any other charges in this case for gun smuggling or any other crime. And police have said Wartman's actions that weekend were not pre-planned. It's possible that he had some sort of a plan that involved mass violence or that someone knew about that plan. But as of right now, we just don't have evidence of that. Linda McDonald said she doesn't know for sure either. But the one thing I do know is she didn't do the shootings. You know, that's the point that we have to stay focused on. That, you know, it wasn't her that did the shootings. She still did endure an act of of male violence against women that started the, the mass shooting. So that theory still stays through, regardless of what her role was in it. What we've been told by women who work in the police department is that there's this idea that violence against women, male violence against women, is a lesser crime. It has to be raised up to the same seriousness as all other violations. And when we believe women and take us women seriously, then we're all going to be safer. because. You know, male violence against women is, is another pandemic, and it can be prevented. And it can, it can prevent many other harms that spill out. So if there's no peace in the home, there's no peace on the street. This is an example of that, how that violence spilled out into the street and onto many streets. On April 18th and 19th, Gabriel Wartman committed a horrible atrocity. Looking into his past is uncomfortable. Spending so much time talking about him is uncomfortable. 
But if we want to walk away from this with a deeper understanding of what happened and the knowledge of how to prevent something like this from happening again, this is part of what we need to do. Experts tell us these repeated incidents we've told you about in Wartman's life are hallmarks of an injustice collector. Things that, in hindsight, look like major warning signs. But not all injustice collectors go on to carry out mass murder. We asked criminologist Michael Arntfield about this. He's a professor at Western University in London, Ontario, and a former police officer. He said Wartman is an extreme case of what happens when those warning signs go unchecked. This is where it's important to recognize the distant early warnings. And as benign or just trivial as they may seem, uh, and this is going back to my police days, neighbor disputes, uh, much like Wartman had, um, over, again, everything from property lines to uh, exterior decor, I mean, they, they will find reasons to take offense over the most trivial of, of, of matters. And again, these are treated as trivialities by the authorities, when in reality, um, they may be nuisance calls, but uh, these are people who often should be screened in for more, um, for increased monitoring and, and scrutiny. We talked to retired FBI profiler James R. Fitzgerald about that too, whether we need to ensure there are better records of these issues. So when someone who violently assaults a teenager for standing too close to their property, someone who openly talks about having lots of guns and is seen to be abusing his partner, is reported, those dots are connected and the complaint is taken seriously. I know in, this, in some states in the U.S. there are these red flag statutes that have certain boxes are checked off with someone. <clears throat> it's mandatory intervention. The police go to the person's home, whether it's a a high school kid who's, uh, you know, putting threatening things on Facebook or, uh, or or they know he's collecting guns, whatever. So, yeah, people, there should be some sort of a database that within reason, these sort of boxes can be checked off. And then I think with perhaps uh, a, a judge's order or a court order of some sort, perhaps then a um, uh, an order can be issued where not necessarily for an arrest, but sort of mandatory intervention to go and talk to people like this. So yeah, uh, our April spree shooter, he checked off uh, all those boxes, uh, the prehistory of violence, the um, alleging somewhere, somehow, he wanted to kill a cop, the um, collection of weapons. This is a formula, A equals B equals C, is not too hard to figure out. And yes, in, in retrospect, it looks like someone some agency, some individual, somewhere should have picked up on this and recognized these, um, these, these telltale signs. Um, but again, I, I don't want to see people's uh, privacy being invaded or rights being violated either. So there has to be a thin line. You know, a commission of some sort will have to come up with something. This doesn't mean that Wartman should have been under surveillance necessarily, but Michael Arntfield says when complaints are made to police, they should pay attention. When we see the behavior escalate to the point that there's actually a complaint, a credible complaint made to police that provided them reasonable grounds to arrest him for domestic assault and at the very least execute a search warrant to ascertain the veracity of this allegation that he had unregistered firearms and nothing is done, that's where it goes from, well, you, he's just a, a nuisance and uh, you know, an obnoxious chronic complainer and vexatious litigant as, as many injustice collectors are and they sort of dismissed him to... Here's some major red flags, and 
especially in the context of his background, and yet nothing was done. So why was nothing done if those warning signs were there? And what else did the police know about Wartman before the shootings happened? There's a lot of answers that the RCMP is going to have to atone for. I mean, just to say that they overlooked it uh, is unacceptable. I don't understand how it could be overlooked. I'm not one to, to, to bash law enforcement. I hope they learn something going forward, but, you know, whether they weren't prepared or not, family deserves to know more than what they are, they are being told. That's next time on 13 Hours. Thank you so much for joining us this week. 13 Hours Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre is written and produced by me, Sarah Ritchie, and Alex Kress. Our story producer is Dila Velasquez. Sound design and audio production by Rob Johnston. Editing assistance from Neil Benedict. Additional reporting for this episode by Global News investigative reporters Andrew Russell, Brian Hill, and Stuart Bell, and former Global News reporter Jane Gerster. Special thanks to Don Cuthbertson, the National Director of Content and Editorial Standards for Global News. I'd love to have you tell a friend about this podcast, and you can help me share these important stories by rating and reviewing 13 Hours on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We have much more on our website, including articles, maps, and photos. All of that written and curated by Brian Hill, Alex Kress, and me. Just head to globalnews.ca slash 13 hours. You can also find us on Instagram at 13 hours podcast. If you have a question about this episode or series, please get in touch on social media or by email at 13 hours at curiouscast.ca. I'd love to hear from you. Our contact information is in the show notes too. Thanks again for listening. Please join me next time on January 4th. Her name is Elspeth. Elspeth Tassioni. You know her as the offbeat but brilliant defense attorney from The Good Wife and The Good Fight. You've been a very busy little bee. Buzz, buzz. Now she's in New York with the NYPD. This is very different. Better. But still using her unconventional ways to find the truth. You're trying to sniff me, Miss Tassioni? <laughs> Elspeth, new series Thursdays on Global. Stream on Stack TV.